Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cool autumn day in the capital where the sun has just started to poke through the clouds is Jamie Sargent. Jamie is a leading British digital entrepreneur, creative industries influencer and respected university lecturer. He is also the founder and CEO of Crowd an award-winning global creative and performance media agency. Uh, Jamie, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you so, so much for joining us on the programme. Thank you ever so much for the time. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us, Jamie. And normally on the show, this is where we dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But just considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do think it's appropriate that we begin with that because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for you and your business, just to what extent has it affected you and your operations? Well, um, <clears throat> it's been it's been very interesting to see how it's affected the various different offices. So, obviously, I mean, we have offices in in China, Dubai, the US, and Europe, and and the UK. So, we saw it first of all in the in the Chinese office um, with with the lockdown very early on, um, and could kind of prepare ourselves slightly um, uh, as it sort of spread across the the, the rest of the offices. Um, we've seen. Uh, we've seen a, a downturn uh, initially. So, with a lot of our clients, uh, in long-standing clients in aviation, so you know clients such as um, Dubai airports, um, mm. obviously where travel has been hit really, really, really badly. So, for those sectors, we've seen um, an incredible downturn. However, as we've started to come through this, um, we've also seen a number of um, other sectors that uh, that needed digital transformation. So. We've been working hard with them to ensure that um, that they can re- replicate how they were um, their their sales funnel and and how we can uh, replicate that digitally. So we are now at a at a fairly good point where all of the offices are busy. Um, we're below target for this year, but um, I don't really think that's a terrible thing as, as you know with the current sort of situation. So we've been helping a lot of um, a lot of uh, new sectors. Um, mm. getting uh, getting their digital transformation in place. So certainly a lot to uh, get your teeth stuck into during the uh, the last few months, it sounds uh, for sure there, Jamie. And um, what can you see um, for the sectors you serve being the long-term effect of uh, COVID-19? Because this digital transformation is not just going to be a short-term solution, given the impact that it's had on consumer confidence in a lot of industries and the way that attitudes are changing just because of COVID-related anxiety technological sort of means of working and operating could well be in place for quite some time. Oh, most definitely. I mean, it's been something that we've been working on uh, for, for, for many years anyway. So I think the companies that, that, uh, that, that did have, um, that did have sort of the agility to quickly switch to, to home working. And, uh, you know, we, we've seen it a lot with a, a variety of our clients. Some of them have, 
have, have dealt with it really, really well um, and had systems in place. Others um, have struggled slightly, which has obviously affected business even further. So I think um, those companies that uh, that did have digital at the forefront um, will be the ones that sort of come through this um, smoother. So although we've never, uh, as an agency, we always had a policy of everybody working from an office. Um, after quickly doing a test, we were lucky enough to um, uh, to, to be absolutely fine in our industry. Um, but really do feel for the, the industries that, that weren't so lucky as ours. Exactly right. Some industries certainly have struggled in comparison and it has been a very tough few months and certainly will be quite a challenging time in the uh, the months to come for sure. So let's just keep our fingers crossed, certainly uh, for them. Um, we should um, move on ever so slightly from uh, COVID just to touch on leadership, just that little bit more broadly, Jamie, after all that is uh, why we're here. Um, and I always like to ask the question to guests that appear on the programme. What does the word leader actually mean to you? When you think of a leader's role, what actually is it? I think a leader's role is somebody that can, um, that can motivate a team of people and, and also inspire them to, uh, to, to want to follow the, the vision of the company and the, the business. So really um, putting your best foot forward at all times and, and hopefully inspiring a team of people that will um, that will follow the company vision. And I think that certainly is no more important than it has been in the uh, the last few months because what leaders have really had to step up and do during this whole COVID-19 situation is step up and really be a beacon of hope and inspiration and also motivation and reassurance for the people that work for them because there's been so much anxiety, not just about personal health and employment prospects, but also um, various things such as futures and things like that. Um, but when we think of um, what, leaders have had to step up and do it's been a very very lonely place at the top hasn't it because when you're an employee i suppose you do have people above you your business executives that you can refer to but it isn't the case when you're the one at the top of the tree who's in control and the buck stops with ultimately so when you are in a leadership position during a time like this how mentally do you prepare yourself for dealing with such a significant challenge and where do you look to for inspiration as and when you need it I've, um, it's a really good um, it's a really good point and um, I think I've been really lucky that we have uh, a number of organizations and peer groups that um, are company owners so the first thing that I did was started reaching out to other people in my position um, that ran businesses and created a sort of peer group um, <clears throat> they might be competitors but um, we're all experiencing the, the same sort of struggles. And, um, and uh, you know, it, it's always interesting to learn from, um, from people that are in a similar position to you. So that's one of the key things that, uh, that I've done that's been really useful and helpful to me. Um, I also have an advisory board, and, um, and that's also been useful. But I think due to the sort of the, the, the strain and the sort of the, the uniqueness of, of what we've just, what we're going through at the moment, I don't think anyone's got a full answer. But it's always interesting to uh, to reach out and sort of network with your peers um, to understand how they're dealing with it and and hopefully learn from them. I think you raise a very important point there. 
we're in a leadership position when you're faced with a crisis and you're sort of staring down the barrel it's important to remember that you're never alone and what we've seen during this time as well is a huge amount of collaboration between businesses because everyone ultimately is in the same boat and a lot of that collaboration has led to some of the innovations that we've seen during this time and that's one of the few positives to come out of this quite difficult situation for all of us. Yeah, I would say that um, you're 100% right. So, you know, innovation typically only happens when thing, things are going wrong. Um, so if everything's going, you know, as expected, um, then it's very difficult to get innovation through any organization. So one of the key things that, that we've seen that's a huge positive um, throughout this is some of the innovation that we've been able to uh, to work with our clients on and, and really help them, you know, change. Um, because they've had to, and in order to to get cut through in in sort of these in this sort of busy market, especially where people are sort of reluctant to spend, um, it's it's absolutely key that, uh, that that we're helping our clients with with innovation through through sort of every team that what they do. And during this time as well, there may be a lot of younger people out there, aspiring entrepreneurs um, especially, who might be a bit disheartened because of the impact of COVID-19 on the economy and certainly on their employment prospects. So just for those youngsters who may be feeling the strain a little bit, what is your message to them based on your experience in the business world to really pick their heads up and get them on the road to success in in the wake of all of this? Well, I'd say that one of the things that um, that's changed massively is the ability to now, you know, everybody is 100% used to um, having Zoom calls or having um, hangouts or Teams meetings um, with with people online. So the, the the necessity to have a big flashy office, I think, has gone, um, and I think that people are far more uh, open now, which would, you know, from a small startup perspective. Some of the overheads are going to be reduced massively. So, if I think if you're if you've got an innovative idea, and um, now is probably a better time than any um, for you to sort of start thinking about how you can get it started up. Um, I think as long as you can clearly um, identify and and communicate what it is that you're looking to do, then I think now is a better time than any to uh, to to look at sort of innovative new business ideas. I think that's very right because out of every single difficult situation comes an opportunity in businesses really sort of holding up its end of the bargain, shall we say, in being innovative, adapting and adjusting to the changing guidelines and changing circumstances to really seize upon the opportunities that will be there as a result of this, because there certainly will be, that is uh, for sure. And um, thinking about the uh, the future of business, particularly over the uh, the next 12 months, Jamie, just before we do wrap things up on today's programme, um, we are going to have to continue to adjust to a new way of living and a new way of working until at least at the end of March, perhaps maybe even longer than that. But for the sector, just what is next over the course of the next year? And indeed, where do you see yourselves at Crowd being this time in 12 months? Well, we're we're still continuing to grow and open new offices even through this, um, and you know that um, for us, with a sort of global perspective and helping businesses into new territories, then I think there's never going to be a demand uh, as quite as much as this as we head into sort of even more uncertain times. Um, we help and enable businesses to export um, their uh, their services or their products. So I would hope to see us 
um, I would hope to see us back on target um, by by the middle of next year, and and really in a in a, in a position to, to 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 remain agile because you know we we really don't know what's uh, what's around the next corner. Um, but I think if we can all um, remain sort of with a very agile mindset, then um, we will be in a better place than um, than some. Sounds like there's plenty to be getting stuck into over the course of the uh, the next few months. And uh, just before um, I do uh, let you go, uh, Jamie, just because you did mention it earlier, um, our working practices are going to be much changed as a result of this pandemic. And we've already seen that during the lockdown period. But once hopefully we do have a working vaccine in place for COVID-19, can you see the conventional office returning in vogue? Or do you think that there will be more people working from home on a personal level? I definitely people working from home. We've had our um, our headquarters in the UK open since August and no one wanted to go back. Um, obviously, with the numbers as they are at the moment, then uh, that's a thing. But I think that a lot of, at least my team, have uh, are really enjoying working from home. And, um, and so far, from a communication standpoint, interestingly, what's actually happened is where we had before siloed teams in different countries, we've now just become one big team. So from, from that perspective, I think it's a, it's a, it's a positive. And it, it depends on, on the, the location. I know our, our offices in Dubai, um, the team are now going back in twice a week um, there, but enjoying working from home. Um, the same in China. Um, they're um, back in the office twice a week. Um, in the UK, we haven't been yet. Certainly going to be a very interesting time, isn't it? And it's something that definitely we're going to be uh, keeping an eye on very, very closely as industry is um, itself as well. And it's a lot for um, certainly employers to be uh, balancing um, up also. Um, I have to say, Jamie, um, it's been such a pleasure welcoming you on to uh, today's programme. And I've thoroughly enjoyed your company on the podcast today. Um, and I actually think just given how enlightening it's been welcoming you on to discuss your views, that it would be wonderful to catch up at some point within the next 12 months just to see how things are uh, coming along and how some of those ambitions that you really got at Crowd are really being borne out. Well, thank you ever so much for your time. And yeah, that would be an absolute pleasure. Um, and uh, if I can help any further, I'm, I'm very happy to do so. I'd certainly welcome that, uh, Jamie. It's been fantastic having you um, join us today. It's been very intellectually stimulating, not just for myself, but also I'm sure for the many listeners tuning in. And um, until um, we do hopefully speak again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet. And let's just keep our fingers crossed. Thank you so much. Yeah, I will do. And I'd certainly reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners tuning in today. Do please continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure to welcome Jamie Sargent onto today's programme, CEO of award-winning global creative and performance media agency, Crowd. Um, Joining us on the programme next will be Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain, Sir Andrew Strauss. Now, during his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in his history. During um, his retirement, Sir Andrew spent a brief period of time as Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and has since become a champion of charitable and mental health concerns. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with him and that is coming up next. 
Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. moment at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. Match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is 
the real world and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you and you need that grounding and again that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life i think so yeah I, I mean very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things being with different people sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your 
time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually. The most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because. They, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be, it doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, 
impressive you might be as a person, they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know, Eva, when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of, uh, especially school kids, who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. 
Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that. 
uh, in a good way. You know, felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing re- uh, wearing red. So w- w- what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely, no. They they were right behind us, and um, you know, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is r- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in Mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.